Church family, I invite you to open up in your copy of God's Word to Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 6, verses 5 through 9. Ephesians chapter 6, verses 5 through 9. It's our text of God's Word for today. The title of our message is Gospel Workplace. Gospel Workplace. Ephesians chapter 6, verses 5 through 9. Give you a moment to find that in your copy of God's Word. I'm going to read. I invite you to follow along. This is the Word of God. Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a slave or free. Masters, do the same to them, and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and that there is no partiality with him. This is the word of the Lord for his church today. Would you pray with me? Father, would you open up our hearts to receive the truth of your word? Father, give us receptive hearts. Give us teachable spirits. Give us an eager desire to hear from you today as you speak to us through your word. Father, thank you for your Holy Spirit who accompanies your word, that guides us into truth. Father, we thank you for the Spirit. Thank you for his work in our lives. Father, would you mold us more into the image of Jesus. Lead us to the cross today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God created some things, didn't he? He created marriage. He said it was not good for man to be alone, and so he created woman and joined the two in a one-flesh union. So from creation, marriage has mattered to God, and therefore marriage matters to God's people. God created child and parent relationships. Think about it. He commanded the first man and woman to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And so from creation, children and parents have mattered to God, and therefore children and parents in that relationship matters to God's people. And God created work. Genesis chapter 2, verse 15 says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And so from creation, work has mattered to God, therefore work matters to God's people. Each of those aspects of life exists because of God's design. Each of those aspects of life involve relationships with others, right? Husband and wife, child and parents, uh, servants and masters. Each of those aspects of life were negatively impacted by the fall when sin came in and corrupted the human heart. But each of those aspects of life, church, are transformed by the gospel, that is the good news of Jesus coming to rescue us from our sin, through his death and resurrection. So all of those things existed before the fall. God created them. They matter to him, and so they ought to matter to us. They're negatively impacted by the fall. When sin comes in, it destroys our relationships, not only with God, but with one another in each of those areas. And yet God so loved the world that he gave his only son to fix the problem of sin. For the past several weeks, we've been working our way through God's instructions concerning these various relationships in Paul's letter to the Ephesians. But these are not merely rules or instructions or laws. 
In a way, they are, but they're not merely those things. They are what we could call gospel instructions. They're instructions, they're rules for living that flow from God's work of salvation in our lives. These instructions are for gospel people to live out because gospel people have been transformed in such a way that the curse of sin has been broken in our lives so that we can now pursue God's best, God's original creation design in our various relationships. Yeah, we still live in a broken world, right? We still live in a world that is marred by sin and our hearts are still plagued by the presence of sin in our lives. It's very true. Even of believers, our hearts are still plagued by the presence of sin. And so living out these gospel instructions are difficult, but because of the power of the gospel, the power of sin has been broken in our lives. It has been removed from our hearts. It has been destroyed, and the power of God lives within us. So even the presence of sin still plagues us. We are not bound to that sin. God's power of the gospel has broken that power of sin in our hearts and lives. And so we can pursue God's best for us in these areas, in these relationships. Relationships We're enabled to live for His honor and glory. And so just kind of thinking through this section of Ephesians, in chapter 5, verses 22 through 33, we learn that the Spirit enables husbands and wives to honor Jesus by reflecting the gospel. In Ephesians chapter 6, verses 1 through 4, we learn that the Spirit enables children and parents to honor Jesus by reflecting the gospel. And today, in Ephesians 6, 5 through 9, You guessed it. We learned that the Spirit enables servants and masters to honor Jesus by reflecting the gospel. Now, we want to consider the context for just a moment. That power of the gospel to transform our hearts from sinners dead in sin to saints who are alive in Christ was what Paul explained in chapters 1 through 3. I hope that as we've been studying chapters 4 through 6, perhaps you've gone back and reviewed some of what we learned in chapters 1 through 3. Paul described to the Ephesians the mind-boggling work of God in providing us with a free gift of salvation that transforms our hearts, that transforms us from the inside out. That gospel transforms our relationship with Him and our relationships with one another. And then in chapters 4 through 6, Paul describes the practical implications of this gospel. Like what that looks like when when the gospel changes somebody's life. What does their life look like? What, what, What do they do? How do they live? How do they think? What kind of things are true of their behavior? You see, when the gospel comes and invades our lives and changes us, then that gospel that changes us on the inside shows up in how we act on the outside. In other words, how we live begins to match up with who we now are in Christ. We're we're saved from our sin. The power of sin has been broken, so it should look like that in our lives. It should look like we're we're people um, who, who aren't controlled by sin anymore. In fact, instead of being controlled by sin, we're controlled by the Holy Spirit. In chapter 5, verse 18, we learn that as gospel people, we now seek to allow the Holy Spirit to control our behavior. And one of the things that that produces in our lives is submission to one another out of reverence for Christ. And that led Paul into explaining several different areas, three to be exact, in which this submission plays out in different roles in our relationships with one another. Wives and husbands, children and parents, and now servants and masters. Today we turn our attention to this servant-master relationship in chapter 6, verses 5 through 9. But I, I, know, I know if you've been, been here and you've heard 
these messages as we walk through this section of Ephesians. You've heard me say this, but I'm going to say it again. I'll probably say it again before the sermon is over. Please remember, the Holy Spirit enables us to live this out. We can't do this on our own. When we live it out, what happens is we honor Jesus. We're doing this for the honor of Jesus by the power of the Spirit. And what then happens as we honor Jesus by the power of the Spirit, we then are reflecting the gospel for others to see. As we walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we have been called, worthy of the gospel. Let's begin where Paul begins in verse 5. Bondservants, obey your earthly masters. Bondservants, obey your earthly masters. Let's consider just a few things before we get into the details. First, much of the workforce in Paul's day and time revolved around people owning slaves or servants. So as Paul is addressing this particular relationship, he's addressing a, a very real relationship in the lives of these believers to whom he is writing in the first century. The slavery or servant, servant labor was definitely different in some ways from what we often think about when we think about slavery as it existed here in our country. Here, slavery was very much based on the color of one's skin. It was very much uh, a discrimination against one group of people because of their, their ethnic background, because of, of how they look. It wasn't necessarily the same when it came to this slavery or, or, or bondservant type labor in Paul's time. There were many different reasons that someone might find themselves as a slave or as a servant in someone's house, in someone's home. Some became bond servants because they needed to pay off a debt. They owed somebody something, and the way that they paid it off was by working for them for a certain time. But they were, they were a slave. They were a servant in that household until that debt was paid off. Some became bond servants because they were conquered in wartime and they were taken captive. Some became bond servants as a means to gain status by working their way up the corporate ladder, so to speak. In fact, there's records of some people desiring to remain in, in that state of being a bond servant because there was opportunities to kind of work your way up as a servant in the house till you were basically the chief servant. And, uh, and you were pretty much a respected member of the house and, and you gained a lot of experience and it actually added to to your kind of credibility and your resume, if you will, when it came to the workforce. And so there are all different, um, all different reasons why someone might find themselves in this situation. Now, some slaves were treated horribly. There are records of that in, in, in this day and time. There were some that were treated absolutely horribly. And yet, on the other hand, some were treated more like employees in a business or even members of the family. In fact, um, oftentimes, uh, fathers would entrust the care of their children over to these um, bond servants, some of which would basically be like uh, teachers and professors today. They, they, they were the ones who taught them and, and did all of their schooling and those sorts of things. And so the, 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 the situations that someone might find themselves in being labeled as, uh, as a bond servant or a slave were various. Lots of different situations, but the fact is there were those in the church who found themselves in this relationship, uh, servant to master. The second thing we want to notice is that it's true that Paul doesn't sound like an abolitionist trying to outlaw slavery, trying to end it. We might would expect him to say, um, the only thing I got to say about this is we need to get rid of this whole system. That might be what we would expect Paul to say as a follower of Jesus. 
Um, but in fact, what we see Paul do is, one, never condone slavery. He never says that it's a good thing. He never says that this situation is a good thing. In fact, if you read uh, all of Paul's New Testament writings concerning uh, slavery and servanthood, you'll see that he encourages slaves to become free if they have the opportunity to do so. And he, uh, he, he, he encourages one particular slave owner, he names him by name, to set his servant free, to set his bondservant, his slave free. He says, you need to set him free. Um, he does it in an in a, in a interesting kind of way. You can read about it. It's called the Book of Philemon. And uh, that's what the whole, whole letter is about. It'll take you about three minutes to read it. Uh, it's very short. Um, but, uh, but that's what that whole letter is about. And he encourages um, the, the master of the house to set the slave free. See, what, what we see as we look at Paul's writings, this isn't the only place that he addresses uh, slavery in, Christian, in, in the household here, and even in Christian households. What Paul is doing is helping Christian bondservants and Christian masters learn how to live out their relationships with one another in a way that honored Jesus by the reflect, reflecting the gospel that had transformed their lives, which is a far greater thing than even just some kind of political change that maybe he might would have tried to, to, to um, cause to come about. Not saying that would be a bad thing, but in his context, he's probably not going to get very far under the Roman government with that. But what he can do is he can speak the truth of the gospel into these relationships. In other words, Paul seems more concerned with the hearts of slaves and their owners and whether or not the gospel is shaping their relationships with one another rather than mere social or legal changes. Third, just kind of contextual thing we want to think about is that Paul addresses the bondservants directly. Perhaps you are already picking up on that because we talked about that when it came to wives and we talked about that when it came to children, that he addresses these groups directly in this letter. Paul assumes that there will be bondservants who have believed in Jesus for salvation, who are members of the church in Ephesus, who are present in the gathering of the saints, and who have the capacity and the, <laughs> excuse me, and the responsibility to live out their salvation just like anyone else. In other words, Paul addressing bondservants directly reveals that Paul doesn't view these citizens as second class in God's family in any way, shape, or form. They have the same salvation and just as much responsibility as anyone else to allow the gospel to transform their hearts and lives. And then fourth, it's the last thing um, as far as kind of this, the, the background and context. Uh, let's go ahead and understand that this truth and the truths that we're going to see today applies to us today. Right now, in the 21st century, you say, how so? Well, even though we might not be a slave or a bondservant, as some in Paul's day were, and even though we may not be the master of, uh, call ourselves the master, be labeled master of, of servants, as some in Paul's day were, the reality is that many of us are in some type of employee-employer relationship, and all of us do work in some way, shape, or form. And so this passage, the truths and principles that we find here, actually do apply to our lives today. If you're an employee of any kind today, or if you have a, if you, if you have a boss, right? Or if you're a student under the authority of a teacher, you can and should apply the instructions given to bond servants to your life and work and job. If you are a boss of others, if, you, if you're an employer or you're a teacher, you have others under your authority, then you can apply the truths for masters to your life. 
And so as we think about this, think about your context, whether it's at work or in a classroom um, or, or even, even in some, some other situation where there's someone serving in authority over you or you are serving in authority over someone else. Now, a lot more can be said even about what we've all just talked about. Uh, but I want to jump into the details, okay? Um, and so I want to share with you uh, a main truth for each uh, of these categories of people, the bond servants and the masters, and then a few things, a few kind of truths, principles underneath each of those main uh, truths uh, to help us live this out in our day-to-day life. So the first thing we see is that gospel servants should obey their earthly masters. It's just, that's just what Paul says, right? It's what God's Word says. Gospel servants should obey their earthly masters. And, and, and remember, the reason I'm saying gospel servants is because he's addressing the saints. He's addressing people who have been transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. These are gospel servants. They are servants in their role in the home, but they are people who have been transformed by the gospel. And the command is for them to obey their earthly masters. Simply put, don't make it any more complicated than it is. If an employer tells you to do something, if a master tells you to do something, and you are in under the authority of that boss, then you should do it. You should submit to his or her authority and do it. There is an exception that we'll talk about in a moment, but the normal response should be obedience. You might not like the instructions. You might wish you were doing something else. You might not understand why your earthly master wants you to do that particular task. But we honor Jesus when we obey our earthly masters. Remember the context. Remember that hinge verse that we talked about even weeks ago, verse 21 of chapter 5. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. All of these areas of submission are out of reverence for Jesus. Why? You say, God, why should I submit to that boss? And God would say, out of reverence for Jesus. We do it to honor Christ. And yet, as we saw in the child-parent relationship, God is not pleased with mere acts of obedience, church. God is concerned with our hearts. He's concerned with the attitude of our hearts as we obey. Notice with me just three truths concerning a servant's obedient to an earthly master. First, obey with respect from the heart. Paul gets right to the, to the hearts of these servants. And he says, you, you don't just do what you're supposed to do, but you do it in the right way with respect from your heart. See, it's very possible to obey in a disrespectful manner. If you complete the task, but you don't do your best, you're not really respecting your master. If you complete the task, but you talk bad about your boss the whole time that you do it, you're not respecting your boss. Notice how Paul addresses the heart behind the obedience. The servant, the employee, is to obey, he says, with fear and trembling. Well, that's crazy, right? <coughs> what does that mean? Well, it doesn't mean that he wants servants to literally be scared of their masters. Because this is the same language God uses to refer to our relationship with God. We're to, we're to come before the Lord with fear and trembling. Not that we're scared to come before Him because He welcomes us, but we come before Him with a respect for His authority. That's what He means by with fear and trembling. With a deep respect for that person that's in authority. The servant, the employee, is to obey, look at verse 5, with a sincere heart. Look at verse 6 from the heart. Look at verse 7, with a good will. Notice how Paul is taking the outward acts of obedience and he's running us right back to the heart. To the heart. How are we obeying? Are we doing this from hearts that show respect for the one in authority? In other words, we are to obey the boss with the boss's best interest in mind. That's what respect means. And that's what it means to obey with respect from the heart. You say, well, my boss is mean. 
My boss doesn't pay me what I deserve. My boss doesn't care about me. Those things might be true. They really might. They might be true. But one of the ways we reflect the gospel is by treating others better than they deserve. Because that's exactly what God has done for us in Christ. And remember, the whole goal of this is to reflect the gospel by honoring Jesus in every area of our lives. We don't stop being an ambassador for Jesus when we go to work. We are to be representing Jesus well all the time. And Jesus is the greatest model of us of what it meant to not revile when we are reviled. To not pay back when we are mistreated. And so we obey with respect from your heart. Second, when it comes to obeying an earthly master, you must remember, church, your heavenly master is watching and is worthy. Remember that your heavenly master is watching and he's worthy. See, even in that opening command in verse 5, Paul sets the obedience of the servant to the master in in a much broader and deeper context. He says, obey your earthly master. Obey your earthly master. That word earthly implies that the servant must also have another kind of master, right? Not an earthly one, but a heavenly one. And that heavenly master is watching and he is worthy. Notice that the servant is to obey the earthly master as though he or she is obeying Jesus. Verse 5, obey as you would Christ. Verse 6, obey as bondservants of Christ. Verse 7, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man. You see, the focus here really is on obedience to Jesus. Understanding this truth should lead us to a few things. One, should help us understand that we are to limit our obedience to our earthly masters. Remember I said there was an exception to our obedience to our earthly masters? Here's the exception. If an earthly master, if a teacher, a boss tells us to do something that would be simple, then we must disobey. Because our ultimate allegiance is to our heavenly master. We must not do anything that is sinful, no matter who tells us to do it. It If it wouldn't please Jesus then we shouldn't do it as followers of Jesus. And so recognizing that we have a heavenly master who is watching and who is worthy of our obedience actually limits our obedience to any earthly master. We don't don't obey if it means sinning. Second, it should encourage us to obey when obeying is difficult, right? Even when the earthly master doesn't deserve our obedience, as we just talked about a moment ago, Jesus is always worthy of our obedience. He's always worthy of our obedience. So if our ultimate goal is to obey so that we honor Jesus, then we always have a reason to obey, even if that boss, even if that master doesn't really deserve it in the moment. We're ultimately not obeying for that person's sake, but for the sake of Christ. And then a third thing, this this remembering that we have a heavenly master who is watching and waiting should, should lead us to, it should actually raise the bar for what obedience looks like. You see, it's tempting to obey just when the boss is looking, right? That's tempting to do. Paul calls that eye service and not heartfelt obedience. He calls it being a people pleaser rather than obeying with a sincere heart. But the bar is raised for Christians. As gospel people, we should desire to please Christ in all of our actions. You see, it shouldn't just, be, uh, when, it shouldn't just matter whether the employer is, is watching us or not, right? Because your heavenly master, my heavenly master, he's always watching us. He's always watching, which means we should do the right thing the right way all the time. No cutting corners, no getting even with the boss, 
by messing something up, not doing something the right way because I'm going to get even with him or her. No slacking when the boss is off of work, when he's out of town, or when she's not there. Maybe in your job you have um, observation days or inspection days or evaluation days, whatever they're called, where somebody who's in authority over you, some kind of superior, some kind of boss, comes in and, and watches what you do. That often happens, kind of comes, and whether it's more formal and planned or informal, just happens to walk, walk in. Do you find yourself working a lot harder and more diligently on those days than when it's not observation day, it's not evaluation day, it's not inspection day? It shouldn't be so. We should be working hard all the time. Your earthly master may not always be watching, but your earthly master And your earthly master may not always be worthy, but your heavenly master, my heavenly master, is always watching, and he is always worthy. One Christian writer put it this way, and I thought this was just put so well, and I wanted to share it with you. He said this, he said, the conviction of the Christian workman is that every single piece of work he produces must be good enough to show to God. That's what Paul is saying here. He's saying, your heavenly master is watching, and he is worthy. But then there's this other other truth that we need to know when it comes to that servant role. Remember, church, that your heavenly reward is coming. Remember that your heavenly reward is coming. Paul has already directed our gaze toward our heavenly master, and now he directs our gaze towards our heavenly reward. Verse 8, knowing, Paul says, that whatever good anyone does... This he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. Christian, one day all of our works will be judged and our good works will be rewarded. Now remember, this isn't talking about working to earn salvation. Okay? Chapters 1-3 through three told us that salvation is a free gift from God. So when we're talking about doing good works, receiving some kind of reward, what we earn, we're not talking about receiving salvation. That comes by God's grace and not our works. But once we have been saved by grace, our lives are transformed to produce good works. And believers in Jesus, Christian, you and me, as followers of Christ, we will not be judged for our sin. God's not going to hold our sin against us, but we will be judged based on what we have done with the salvation that He has given to us. We'll be rewarded for living worthy of the calling to which God has called us, including obeying our earthly masters with a sincere heart. Paul wrote this to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10. For we must all appear, and he's talking about Christians here. If you go read the context, he's talking about Christians because he's talking about dying and being in the presence of the Lord. Okay? He says, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Now, I don't know exactly what all these rewards will look like exactly. The Bible doesn't go into a lot of detail there, but I can tell you this, if Jesus is the one giving them, there's going to be good. And I know that what's going to be the result of that is that they're going to further magnify the glory of Jesus, which should be our greatest desire as people saved by Jesus. And so church, we obey with respect from the heart. Remember, your heavenly master is watching and waiting and remember that heavenly reward that is coming. Now the attention gets turned to the masters. Gospel masters, church, should treat servants with a mutual respect. The word mutual meaning mean kind of the same way, likewise, in return, treating others as you would have them treat you with a mutual respect. Verse 9, masters, here's the command to masters, do the same to them. 
That's the command. There's one command given to masters here. Do the same to them. Do the same to the bond servants. He gives one command, do the same. What does that mean? Well, it obviously doesn't mean that the masters are to obey the bondservants any more than, than parents should obey the children. He's not getting rid of the different roles that are here. Paul's not completely destroying the distinction of roles between the master and the servant, but what he is doing is showing how the gospel completely transforms the hearts, not only of the servants, but also of the masters as well. And that heart transformation shows itself in transformed behavior. Paul seems to be saying this, masters, just like your servants should be treating you with heartfelt respect as they serve out of obedience to Jesus, you should also show heartfelt respect to your servants, to your employees, as a way of honoring Jesus. See, while the masters are still the masters, they should show a mutual respect to the servants. Again, notice just a few things here regarding masters and how they are to live that out. Remember, we can, we can contextualize this. We can apply this to our lives. We think about an employee or, or, a, or a boss or, some, or a teacher or somebody who's in authority over others in their job. What does that look like to, to, to do the same to them? Well, first, it means refrain from threatening. Refrain from threatening. I mean, again, it, is what it, it says what it says. Stop threatening, Paul says. Refrain from threatening. Literally, that phrase in verse 9 says, giving up your threatening. He's further describing that command. What do I mean by what do I mean by do the same to them? I mean give up your threatening. It's similar to the instructions to fathers in the previous passage to refrain from provoking their children to anger. Masters are not to garner obedience through threats. Masters are not to garner obedience through threats. When we make threats, we're definitely not showing respect to the other person. In fact, what we're doing is we're acting in a domineering manner as though we are the final authority. But the Christian master knows that this is not the case. He or she is not the final authority. The Christian master knows that he or she answers to a higher authority. The Christian master knows that Jesus is the real master. And that should put a halt on any type of threatening out of a domineering type way because it should infuse our hearts with humility knowing that we have a master who is in heaven. And that leads right into the second kind of truth for, uh, for masters, for these Christian masters. Remember your place as a servant of Jesus. You got to remember your place as a servant of Jesus. An earthly master will be able to show mutual respect for servants, employees, by remembering that Jesus is the ultimate master. The earthly master may be in a position of authority over certain people, but he or she's not the final authority. The king of heaven is the final authority, and that changes how we exercise whatever limited authority we may have here on this earth. Paul reminds earthly masters of their heavenly master when he says, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven. Knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven. That's kind of Paul's kind of, kind of sliding it in there way of saying, hey, masters, just remember you have a master too. He who is both your, their master and yours is in heaven. You have a master too. The reality is that every Christian master is a servant of Jesus. It doesn't matter how many employees you have or how many people are under your authority. The most powerful earthly master is still only an earthly master who is under the authority of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. He's a servant. She's a servant. Masters, teachers, employers, before you threaten, remember who you serve. 
You serve Jesus. And just like the servant should work as though Jesus is watching because he is, masters should do the same. And that should make earthly masters stop and ask, how did Jesus exercise authority? If I'm in a role where I have a, a position where I'm exercising authority over anyone, or in the home or, or in a workplace or wherever it is, I should ask, how did Jesus exercise his authority? The answer is he served others. He touched the lepers. He held the little children. He cared for the outcasts. He washed dirty feet. He went to the cross. He didn't walk around yelling down threats to people. He loved them and cared for them and was patient with them and served them and ultimately he died for them. Earthly masters, remember at the end of the day, you are a servant of Jesus, so exercise your authority as a reflection of Jesus Christ. But Paul takes it a step further in his description of the role of the masters. And church, this is where we really see the gospel come in and absolutely radically transform lives and relationships and overthrow the status quo when it comes to masters and servants. The third and final truth under this category of masters is this. Remember, your servant is your spiritual equal. Or you could say, if you want to use a different word for servant, I'm using the word that's here, your, your employee or whoever is under your authority, your student is your spiritual equal. Your servant is your spiritual equal. Remember, Paul is talking to Christians here. He's talking to Christian servants and Christian masters. Notice what he says. He doesn't just remind earthly masters that Jesus is their master. He reminds them that Jesus is their master and their servant's master and that Jesus treats both earthly masters and earthly bondservants exactly the same. Verse 9 says, Knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. Church, at the foot of the cross, at the foot of the throne of heaven, we are all spiritual equals. Everyone, both master and servant, are equally born dead in their sin, equally separated from God. Everyone, both master and servant, are equally in need of God's saving, transforming power through the gospel. Every Christian, both master and servant, are equally saved through faith in Jesus. Every Christian, both servant and master, are joined to God and to one another in one family called the church. We are equal citizens of God's kingdom. We are equal members of God's household. Masters and servants share a common salvation, a common Savior, and a common Lord. And that changes everything. Paul's already stated this clearly in Ephesians. Paul didn't make any distinctions between masters and servants when he described God's salvation plan in chapters 1 through 3. There's one salvation plan for anyone who would come to, to, come to Christ through faith and repentance. Paul didn't make any distinctions between masters and servants when he described those who are saved as reconciled to God and to one another. Remember chapter 4, 4 through 6? There's so many places in chapters 1 through 3 we could go. I just want to go to one place, chapter 4, 4 through 6. There is, think about this. Think about masters and servants sitting next together, next to each other in the church in Ephesus, hearing this letter from Paul that is the Word of God. There is one body and one spirit, just as you, master and servant, were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Both bondservants and earthly masters together have one heavenly master, and he doesn't show partiality. 
He will judge every person equally. The world may look down on the servants and cater to those with authority, but not Jesus. Not at all. He will hold both servants and masters accountable to his word, to his way. End of story. Just think about how the gospel would have transformed the relationship between masters and servants in Paul's day. This is far deeper change than just some kind of political change that maybe Paul could have tried to, to, to muster up. Some kind of social change. It's not that those things aren't good, but we want those things to flow from gospel change in our hearts. The servant was to serve the master as though he or she was serving Jesus, and the master was to view the servant as his or her brother and sister in Christ. That's, that's radically transformative. You see, you don't offer mere eye service to Jesus and you don't threaten your brother or sister in Christ. And these same principles apply today in the workplace, in the classroom, and anywhere where there are servant-master type relationships. These roles being lived out among Christians. Church, the gospel changes everything, including our relationships with one another. The gospel takes what's been broken by sin, washes us clean, fills us with the presence of the Holy Spirit and sets us on a path where God's original design for his world begins to be restored in us so that the church looks like the heavenly worshipers that God created us to be. But that only happens when we live out the implications of the gospel in our lives. When we live lives controlled by the Spirit, honoring Jesus by reflecting the gospel, that good news of salvation. Christian, our lives are to look different than others. As a, as a Christian worker, employee, student, the way that you do that work should look different than the world around you. Christian masters, Christian bosses, Christian employers, Christian teachers, the way that you do your work should look very different than the way that the world exercises that kind of authority. We belong to Jesus. The gospel has transformed our lives and it changes everything. So are you living this out? Maybe today you need to confess some slacking at work as you realize, wait, Jesus is watching even when my boss isn't. Maybe today you need to confess threatening. You, you were in some kind of position of authority, but, but there have been threats coming from your mouth. You haven't been treating others the way Christ treated those who were under his authority. Maybe there needs to be some confession, Christian. Maybe there needs to be some, some prayer to say, God, would you help me live this out in my life by the power of your Holy Spirit? Maybe you can't live out gospel works because you haven't been transformed by the gospel. And if you haven't, then what you need to do today is you need to see that Jesus has done everything necessary to rescue you from your sin. And if you'll turn from your sin and turn to Jesus, he will transform you. And you'll get to be a gospel person you'll get the privilege of living out God's original design for you. And there's nothing greater in all of life than living in a way that brings God honor and glory, but can only happen when God transforms our hearts through his gospel. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word today. We thank you for addressing various situations in life and helping us see how the gospel impacts every single area of our life. Father, help us to remember the gospel order, that we don't live for you so that you'll save us. Father, 
We live for you because you have saved us once we have placed our faith in Jesus. And so, Father, if anyone's here today that hasn't trusted in Jesus Christ, Lord, I pray that even as we have considered the gospel and even considered how Jesus came, and even though he was in authority over us, served us by going all the way to the cross and dying in our place and then rising from the dead, Lord, I pray that that gospel would penetrate lost hearts even in this moment, that those who are lost would ask you to save them, not because they are worthy, but because you loved them. Father, for those of us who have trusted in Christ, Lord, may we be serious. Help us to be serious about living out the gospel in every area of our life. Lord, we've seen how the gospel impacts uh, the relationship between a husband and a wife. We've seen how the gospel impacts the relationship between children and parents. Now we've seen how the gospel impacts the relationship between servants and masters. Lord, Lord between, between an employee and an employer, between a worker and a boss. Father, Lord, help us to live this out by the power of your Holy Spirit in us, for the honor of King Jesus, may we reflect the gospel change that you so graciously bring into our lives. Father, this is a part of what it means to live on mission for you in a lost and dying world. Father, that we would speak the gospel to people and that we would show the gospel to people as we live out gospel transformation. At home, in the workplace, among the body of Christ. Father, help us to live this out. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.